After Dan, we decided that it would be good to go through the book of 1 John. And I'm very excited to do that. This is my first opportunity to be able to go through a series, to be able to go through one book. And I'm excited to do that through my internship here. I think, I think 1 John has a, a lot to offer us. I know that's kind of a weird way of saying it, but a book that's relevant to today, as the whole Bible is, but in ways that we can see it very clearly. So if you would, would you turn to 1 John chapter 1? We will be reading for chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. And that's on the page 1898 in the Pew Bible. Thus says the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. People of God, I would like to ask you a question tonight. What is so special about Christianity? This is kind of a simple question, a broad question. But if someone asks you, you're a Christian, why? What's so special about it? There are a lot of other options in the world. What's so great about the gospel? You know, I think many of us might be thinking in our heads and, well, what's special about the gospel is that I'm saved. I've been cleansed. I'm I'm no longer going to hell. Very personal things, and that's true. Those are very true answers to what the gospel is. But what 1 John offers and what the Bible itself offers in many ways are different angles of seeing the gospel. Different ways of seeing the the great news, the great good news that we have received in God's word. And 1 John is no different. And what we see in the whole book, but especially in this first chapter, is how the gospel brings us to fellowship with God. Now, These aren't terms we really think of much. 
But humans are hardwired for fellowship. Each and every one of us has someone or more than someone in our lives who we are in close fellowship with. This is that person that when you have news that you want to tell someone, you need to go tell that person. You need to go and experience this. This is the closest person in your life, a friend or a spouse, a family member. Fellowship is something that we need. It was a little over a year ago that my grandfather passed away. And through this past year, my grandma has had to deal with his loss. And she always loved him and they were always very close. But she said, I never knew how much I loved him and how much I enjoyed his fellowship until it was gone. Well, this is something that has happened to the human race. This happened to us in the garden. When we sinned in Adam and lost fellowship with God, we were created to dwell with him. We were created to have a personal relationship with God, and we lost it. It's gone, or it was gone. And what does this passage show us? How does 1 John answer this question? Because the world has a lot of ways of answering this question of how do we regain fellowship with this holy God when we are sinful? Well, the first answer from the world would probably be, well, we're not sinful. There is no God, so there's no problem. But there's more than just atheists and unbelievers who would say that. There are those who would claim to be Christians who say, well, I think I'm a good person and I'll gain fellowship with God, I'll gain heaven that way. There are Christians who claim to be perfect, who think that they are not sinful, and our passage addresses that quite specifically. How do we regain fellowship with God? You know, the many ideas that the world has to answer this question all share one thing in common. They reject Jesus Christ in some way. They either don't see his fullness of what he's done or they deny him completely. And our passage speaks to that as well. And that's why it's so interesting to read the book of 1 John. John wrote this book in a time when there were numerous heresies regarding Christ. There were those who claimed that Christ was not the promised Messiah. There were those that claimed that Christ was not the Son of God. There were those that rejected that Christ was a human, that he was a real human being. There were many in the church that John had written to who had left. These people who had taught these heresies, who believed these things, and they were gone. They split. And John's writing to the remaining believers, and he's writing to them because he wants them to know the truth. He wants them to know the truth of his message, the truth of Jesus' message, He wants them to know what they must believe to have eternal life. And he wants them to have assurance that they have eternal life. I think we can see how much that affects us in our world today. In many ways, 1 John is a book of strong doctrine. But it's not just a book about doctrine. It's about about doctrine applied. It takes the truth and applies it to our life. It takes what is true, what we confess, and shows us, well then, what does that mean in you? How is this played out? First John has a strong pastoral heart. This is a pastor writing 
to his people. He wants them to have assurance and believe. He wants them to obey. He wants them to have fellowship with God. And so the theme of our passage today, the statement that if you wanted to summarize what's this passage saying, is that the message of Christ results in the joy of divine fellowship. And that, once again, is the message of Christ results in the joy of divine fellowship. And we'll look at that asking three questions. What is the message of Christ? What is fellowship? And how does this message and this fellowship play out in a sinful world? And so first, what is the message of Christ? This passage begins by providing a foundation for John's witness and the truth of what he's saying. His word is concerning this word of life. And he says it's something that we heard, and we, that makes sense to us. We all know a message is something you hear with your ears. But he, then he says something odd He says, we have seen it with our eyes and touched it with our hands. They have seen, touched a message? What is this? Well, this can't be anything other than Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that this word of life, this message that he brings to them is none other than Jesus himself. See, the gospel in many ways is Jesus Jesus is the gospel to us. He's bringing the message, but he's the very embodiment of that message. He's God's word in the flesh. Come to us. And so the revelation of God was more than simply a spoken word. It was something that they saw, that John and the apostles and hundreds of others bore witness to and saw. John is saying that he was an eyewitness along with these other first-hand witnesses because he wants to give this congregation assurance of the truth. I think this is something that we may miss at times. I know I found this in my own life where we think, okay, I need faith, I need to trust in Christ, and that's true, but sometimes we go about it as if it's an unfounded faith. As if we have to turn off our, our, the logic in our brains, accept what the Bible's saying, knowing that it, it doesn't really make sense or it couldn't really have happened, but we have to believe it. There are times in which we have to believe what we don't understand. But what John is saying is that this message that came is a historical reality because it was Jesus himself who they saw and they touched, who they were with, John is going through great lengths to show that this word he's writing is actually the message of the living, breathing Jesus Christ. The Bible itself is very clear to show us that the events of redemption historically happened. This is very important. There are many Christians who seek to deny the historicity of many of the events in Scripture. But John is saying, no, I saw it. He's telling his congregation, this congregation, that I bore witness to this. So did the other apostles. So did hundreds of others who saw Christ risen from the dead. This message is a living, breathing word. Let's not forget that. And let's not forget that this message is the same one we have today. 
We have access to Christ himself in the pages of scripture. Through our communion with each other, with God's word, through the sacraments, we experience grace, we experience Christ. This is true of us even today as it was in John's own day. And so these first four verses show us that the word of life and the message of Jesus Christ came in the incarnation. These verses show the fact of the incarnation, that it happened. They show the usefulness of eyewitnesses and the testimony and its reliability. And they show what the incarnation manifested being eternal life. Because Jesus came with a message that brought eternal life. Jesus himself is the life giver. He is the message of eternal life. But these verses also show us the goal of this message. The goal of this proclamation was to nurture fellowship. You can see that in verses 3 and 4. And that's what we move to now. What is fellowship? You see, these verses show us that Christianity at its root is Jesus Christ But it's not some static Jesus Christ, a head knowledge. It's Jesus Christ's experience. He wants his hearers to have fellowship with them, himself and the other eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they together have fellowship with God. We might ask, why fellowship? Well, this is why I started the service the way, or we started the service the way we did. We lost fellowship. The answer of fellowship is the great message of the gospel that we are once again brought into union with God. And But what John shows is this union didn't result simply in us being again united to God and in fellowship with him, but with each other, with the church. This was a surprise to me when I came across this in this passage. You don't usually think of this fellowship with God and with each other. At least I don't. I didn't think of it much. Verse 3 goes on to say that their fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So fellowship with the believers is fellowship with God himself. Later in the book, in chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about those who had been among them who had left them. These people who weren't truly part of them, weren't members. They had left. They didn't think fellowship with the body of Christ, was necessary. But it is. You can't escape fellowship with each other if you want fellowship with God. We are united to God through the Spirit. In fact, to define what fellowship is, one commentator said, fellowship is that common participation in the grace of God the salvation of Christ, and the indwelling spirit common to all believers. It is our common possession of the Trinity which makes us one. Our fellowship with each other arises from and depends on our fellowship with God. These are glorious truths. We don't just gain fellowship with God, but with each other. And this is the joy of the gospel. This is John's joy. He wants them all to complete their joy in this fellowship that they have with each other, with God. This is something the church in America and the world needs to know. This is something that we need to live. 
People of God, the gospel is not so small that it merely means each one of us is saved from sin. This personal, oh, that person saved, I'm saved, we're all saved. Well, we're all saved together. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Let's not forget the corporate nature that salvation is as well. But let me ask a question. Do we desire Christian fellowship? John is speaking of what is true of us eternally and in our standing before God. We have fellowship with him in Christ. But do we live that way? How does that play out? How are our devotions? How's our prayer life? We have fellowship with God once again, meaning a participation, a union with him. Do we live like we do? Do we live in his word? Do we live constantly in prayer? Do we live out this expression of fellowship? What's true of us in salvation, do we actually try to incorporate that and look for fellowship? And let's take it a step further. Say we did all that and say we do all that. How's our fellowship with each other? How's our fellowship with the saints? How's our fellowship with our neighbors? Do we seek them? Do we seek to be with them? Do we seek to bear each other's burdens? Because we all are united in the same, the same goal, the same participation, the same kingdom work. Do we desire to do these? One of the most common problems I see in the church in America is that there are many who think that they can be part of it without being members in it. What's the point? We can go, at, go to home and listen to sermons on, online. We can pop in a DVD. We can turn on the TV and we can experience church. Why, why be a member of it? Why, why join with each other? Well, it's because we are united with each other. It's because we should want to be with each other. We should want to hear God's word proclaimed with each other. We should want to bear each other's burdens. And this is hard. But this is joyous work. This is amazing news. Now we might think, but I'm a member in good standing at church. I don't neglect worship. Here we are at an evening service. Clearly we're not neglecting meeting together. But how is your love for each other? It's very easy to go about the motions of Christian fellowship. It's very easy to attend a worship service even twice a week. But where's our heart? Do we have the joy of Christian fellowship and the longing for it? And if we don't, well, we know what we do. We go to God and we pray and we ask him that he would increase our fellowship, that he would draw near to us and that we would draw near to each other. We even, under, we even see, saw, see this and just confessed it in the Apostles' Creed. We talked about a Catholic church and a communion of saints. This is what fellowship is. We ask the question, well, what is fellowship? This is what fellowship is. Fellowship with each other because we are in fellowship with God. 
This leads to our third question. How does this gospel and this fellowship play out in a sinful world? And we do that by moving to verse 5. And in it we see the center of this message. The point that John wants to emphasize and how he summarizes what the message of the gospel is, is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now obviously we know that God is not the lights. He's not just light. John's not saying this is the substance of who God is. He's using figurative language to describe God's character. To say that God is light is to say that he's pure. Is to say that he's holy, that he cannot be perverted. That there is no filth in him. There's no wickedness, no hypocrisy or fraud. God is not evil. It is to say that God is good and true. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of light being associated with God, his word, salvation, goodness, truth, God's commandments, with life itself. Darkness, however, is associated with wickedness, judgment, and death. This usage of light imagery is very common in John. In his gospel, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is very common in John to speak of God as light. But if he is this, if God is light and there's no darkness in him, what are the implications of that for us who are in fellowship with this God? What does that mean in our lives? And John addresses three errors in verses 6 through 10. The first error is the idea that we can be in a relationship with God, but yet walk in darkness. We can be saved, but then sin, and that's okay. Whether or not there were those teaching that in John's day, it's hard to determine. This could be something that John is just wanting his congregation or this people to know. But this is definitely something we face in our life. I can be saved, but I can sin. But the usage of this light imagery is perfect here. How can light be with darkness? The two are completely opposed to each other. You walk in a room that's dark, and if you turn on the light, it's not dark anymore. If there's light, there is no darkness. If there's darkness, there is no light. You, the two don't mix. And so if that's true of us, if we are in fellowship with this God of light, can we walk then in darkness? Now obviously we're thinking, yeah, but we sin and we do. But the word walk here conveys the idea of ongoing, repeated activity in sin. Unrepentant sin. Sinning without remorse. There can be no fellowship with God in this way. If you are in fellowship with God, you must be in the light as well. And therefore, you must not walk in darkness. You see, our theology and our doctrine brings forth action. If we say that we are sinners, but God is not, if we say that we have the truth, we have true faith, this means then that we can't then indulge in sin, in this unrepentant sin. If we confess that we are in fellowship with God, this demands that we remove ourselves from the darkness. Now I'm guessing none of us would ever say that it's okay to walk in unrepentant sin 
and then be a Christian. We know that that's not true. We know that we can't do that. But then again, I question, do we live that way? Do we live knowing that we cannot do that? Or do we say, it's okay to walk in a little bit of darkness? It's not that bad. I know I probably shouldn't watch this, but it's not that bad. I know I probably shouldn't say this. I know that I'm kind of gossiping here, but it's, it can't be that bad. Or I want it a little bit more than I want the light. Can't I have my cake and eat it too? Can't I be in the light, but still follow the temptations? Still gratify the flesh? John's saying, no. No, you can't. It's very easy to do this. We are sinners, and we find ways. Sometimes the easiest way of doing it is just fixating on the thing you want. The conscience comes up and says, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing this, you should read God's word, you should pray, and we, we, we stifle it and we don't think about it. Rather, we think, but look at all the joy that could be had with that sin. Look at how beautiful it looks to us. And it's not that bad. But no, God is light. There can be no fellowship with the darkness. Now I want to say and be clear here that when we sin, we sever our relationship with God. But what I mean by that is not that we lose our salvation, but we do lose the joy of our fellowship. You know, this is a difficult passage in some respects because, as is often the case in God's word, you have a call for obedience that seems so strong that if I sin, well, then I couldn't be saved. But yet this passage also shows us that, no, we are sinners. We must repent. So you see this healthy tension that we ourselves know, this tension of I must strive, I must battle my hardest, I must walk in the light, but... I must confess the sin that I know I have. This isn't a legitimizing of sin, it's a recognition that we aren't yet made perfect. And so we strive for obedience, but we live and look always to Christ. But there is this warning. If you are continuing to walk in unrepentant sin, without remorse, without confession, and your life is characterized by living in darkness then John is telling us that we are liars and not actually in fellowship with God. If you don't feel a need to repent, well, where does that show where our faith is? True faith demands repentance. True faith does not demand perfection from us. It demands repentance. And that's why verse 7 shows the other side, walking in the light, Or in other words, living in relationship to God means that we all participate in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. We may have had our consciences pricked there. It's very common for us to live questioning our salvation. That comes up a lot of times in our life. Maybe it is after a sin. In the psalm we read, David is dealing with a lot of sin. And when you read that, you'd almost think, is he saved? This is very natural for us to question that. But what this verse is saying is that if you are in the light, you have fellowship with Christ who cleanses us. 
We look to Christ for our assurance. We look to what he has done, not to what we do. Yes, our actions show, do we have true faith? Is our faith an outworking of what's true in us? But it's not the grounds by which we stand. We stand cleansed through Jesus' blood. This is the first error John addresses, that you can walk in the light and in the darkness at the same time. The second error is brought up in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The idea here is that there may have been those in John's day who were claiming that they were currently living without sin. Whether this was meaning they didn't have a sinful nature anymore or that post-conversion they were perfect, it's not very clear. John doesn't tell us, but we see that he's addressing, can you live right now without sin? And he says, no. Now, actually, this should give us some, we should be happy about this. This means that we aren't perfect and John's not expecting us to be perfect because if we said we were, we'd be lying. We'd be deceiving ourselves. It is interesting that the flip of this verse, the converse of it, would be if we claim to be sinful, then the truth is in us. If we claim to have sin, we are in the truth. That's why verse 9 flows so wonderfully from that. So if we claim to be sinful, well then immediately we would go to confession, to confession of sin. If it's true that we are sinful, then we admit our sin and, we, and the need to face up to that and to go to Jesus. And verse 9 reassures us that our confession will be answered because of the nature of God. It says he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Once again, we find our assurance in the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his promises and to his covenant. He is faithful to those he is in fellowship with. He will not reject our confession made through Jesus Christ. We can be assured of that. In fact, to doubt it would be sinning. Yeah, but my sin's so bad, if I confess it, I still don't know if I'd be saved. Well, what does that say about who Jesus is and his sacrifice? It would demean it. It would say it wasn't enough, but it is. You see how this passage so wonderfully goes both ways and says, walk, be obedient, but you have assurance in Christ. You know where you stand with God. And so you see this passage is a call to walk in obedience. Chapter 2, verses 1, through 1 and 2 tell us that. John says, I write this to you so that you won't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate. We have someone to go to. Verse 10 is the final error John addresses. If we claim we have not sinned, this is very similar to the second error, but what's probably being said here is that those who claim they have not sinned in the past, those who claim that they are not sinful, were never sinful. We see the gravity of this error in what John says it makes God. It makes God a liar. There's a progression going on in these verses. Verses 6 through 10 show this progression in 
going from claiming to have communion with God to claiming that they have no sin currently to claiming that they have never sinned. And then there is the other progression going from liars not doing the truth then to believing those lies and finally making God himself a liar. This is what happens to those who reject the message of Christ and Christian fellowship. God very clearly says in his word that there are no ones who are righteous, no one who is perfect. You can think of Romans 3.23. All have sinned. There is no perfect one. Now again, this all might seem obvious, so simple and something we don't actually really need to hear. Oh, we know this. But in our circles, because in our circles you don't generally run across many people claiming to be perfect. They're out there, but we don't generally run across them. But what do we see in ourselves? We might say that light and darkness don't mix, then we go after it. We go after some darkness. We might say that, yes, we are sinful, I admit, we are sinful, but then do we live in confession? I'll admit in my own prayer life, I spend most of the time making requests. Keep me safe, bless me with this, I need this, give me my daily bread, all these things which are true, true and we ask and, and, and can ask. But what about our confession? If it's true that we know that we are sinful, that we proclaim that, then it's healthy for us to confess our sin. This is what we should do. We began the service asking, what is so special about Christianity? One pastor speaking of this passage said, to walk in the light is to acknowledge God's holiness and our lack of holiness. And if you are going to enjoy the fellowship that God designed you for, you must see your sinfulness so that you will more eagerly look to Christ who brings that fellowship with God. The whole scope of redemptive history, the whole Bible, is about regaining that fellowship. And we see that it's through Christ that this is done. We see that we have it now. So much of what we have been given through Christ, we have to look forward yet to. Oh, in heaven will be perfect, in heaven we'll have this or that. Right now, we have fellowship with God. Right now, what was subverted in the garden has already been in undone in our standing before God. Because in Christ we stand before him sinless. Because in Christ we can say we are sinless. Because Christ's work was applied to us. We don't deny sin, we don't dismiss it lightly. Rather, we try to see the full breath of its wickedness so that we can see the full breath of God's love. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you that we can come before you and confess our sin. We thank you that our sin does not keep us from fellowship with you because we are cleansed in Christ's blood. We thank you that we can go out this week and have fellowship with you. We thank you that we can run to you in prayer and not be denied. We thank you that you see us as your children. In fact, we thank you that we are 
your children. But then as this passage says, we pray that we would respond, that our actions would back this up, that we would live more holy lives, that you would continue to sanctify us. For we know that it is not by our abilities, it's not by us trying that we can achieve sanctification. It's through your working in us. And we pray that you would do that and we thank you for that. Amen. Now, let's respond.